You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Yo, there's a brand new video episode of the Redacted History Podcast on the Redacted History YouTube channel. You can find it linked in the show notes below. Now let's get to the show. This episode does contain some explicit language and content revolving around sexual assault and racial violence. If you need to take a break and come back to the episode, please do so. Take care of yourself. What if I told you there once lived a man who served over 40 years in solitary confinement in a six by nine cell, 23 hours a day, seven days a week for 40 years, the longest documented stint of solitary confinement in United States history. Well, that will be the truth. I'm Andre, and this is the Redacted History Podcast. A couple of weeks ago, WNBA player and basketball legend Brittany Griner was released and sent home from an almost year-long nightmare. On February 17, 2022, Brittany was arrested in Russia on charges of drug smuggling into the country. She was detained and found to be carrying a vaporizer cartridge, carrying less than a gram of hash oil. She was sentenced to a decade in a Russian penal colony. This will begin a year-long legal and political battle where Britney will be imprisoned in Russia and used as a political pawn between the Russian and United States governments. Britney was released and allowed to come home via a one-to-one prisoner swap on December 8, 2022. Britney's story is tragic and infuriating, and it got me to thinking about prison abolition as a whole. The entire time that our situation was happening, Just the idea of prison abolition, prison reform, were just running through my head nonstop. It got me to thinking about the injustices that happen worldwide, most notably injustices that I am so familiar with here in the United States. Injustices that so often happen to black and brown people, black and brown people that look like me. It got me to thinking about Albert Woodfox. Albert Woodfox, the Black Panther who spent over four decades, 56% of his life to be exact, in solitary confinement in a Louisiana prison, all for a crime that he did not commit. Albert Woodfox was born February 19, 1947, in the Negro Wing of Charity Hospital in New Orleans, Louisiana, the day after Mardi Gras. He was born to a 17-year-old black girl named Ruby Edwards. His mother, Ruby, lived a very hard life, as many black people in the Jim Crow South did. She was born in 1929 into a society where black people were seen as inferior and less than. When Ruby was a teenager, the NAACP described Jim Crow to the Louisiana Weekly as modernized, streamlined slavery that replaces shackles with four whites only signs, that replaces slave quarters with slum ghettos, that replaces three meals a day with starvation wages, that replaces the master's whip with the torch of the mob. Albert remembered experiencing this life with his mother as a young boy. His mother was always determined to make the best out of what they had, even the adversity that was Albert's paternal grandmother taking his mother Ruby to custody court to get sole custody of Albert because she thought Ruby was unfit to raise him. 
Ruby fought back in court even though she was illiterate and was unable to read any of the court documents. The judge ruled that Albert would stay in his mother's custody, but would have to put his father's name on the birth certificate, thus making Albert a wood fox by name only. When Albert was five, his mother fell in love with a Navy chef named James Mabel. This caused them to move several times to different naval bases. Albert was a rebellious and inquisitive child who spent a lot of time on his grandparents' farm in LaGrange, North Carolina, where his grandparents taught him how to cook and prepare fish and how to work on a farm and live on a farm as a whole. When Albert was 11, his stepfather James, who he referred to affectionately as Daddy, was forced to retire from the Navy after 25 years, and they began living on the farm in North Carolina full-time. Without the respect and stature of being in the Navy, James fell into a depression that he projected with rage and abuse towards Albert's mother, Ruby. Ruby's sisters convinced her to leave James and run for her life back to New Orleans. She packed up everything she owned and took Albert, his little brother Haywood, and his infant brother Michael. Behind in North Carolina, she left his five-year-old sister Violetta and three-year-old brother James, whom Ruby's sisters promised to send down to New Orleans as soon as possible. But for now, the main objective was to get Ruby away from her abusive situation. Albert, his mother, and his siblings lived in the sixth ward of New Orleans. Albert's mother was functionally illiterate, so she did whatever she could do to support her family and provide. This meant long nights, odd jobs because she couldn't qualify for regular jobs, and sex work to make ends meet. Most days, Albert and his brothers had to find ways to keep themselves busy, whether it was chores around the house, playing sports barefoot in the streets with other black kids, or exploring the world around them. Albert was a very smart child who excelled in school. In the sixth grade, he took social studies classes taught by a black teacher, and this is where he really learned what a black person's place in society was supposed to be. He learned about the laws of segregation and the Ku Klux Klan's lynchings of black people. He felt that these lessons and the way the world was weakened him and made him disillusioned with education. After three more years, Albert decided that he was done with school altogether and dropped out and decided to turn to the streets to get what he felt he needed. Where justice is denied, where poverty is enforced, where ignorance prevails, and where any one class is made to feel that society is an organized conspiracy to oppress, rob, and degrade them, neither persons nor property will be safe. Frederick Douglass At around the age of 12 is where Albert's life of petty crime began. He had a job in a local store, and when he got off, he'd meet with the local boys to figure out ways to get things that they did not have. They shoplifted bread, snuck into theaters, entertained people on street corners for money. They started to refer to themselves as a gang, the Sixth Ward High Steppers. His mother could see his path from a mile away and urged him to be careful and not get into a life of crime that would lead him down a path of no return. They made turfs and made sure to stay out of the way of other gangs, and if they were ever confronted by another gang, then there would be brawls. No one had guns yet, so they just fought with fists and sticks. Albert was 18 years old. He got into his first real brush with the law. In the spring of 1965, he and some friends had gone to a party about 60 miles north of New Orleans. As they were driving back, a state trooper flashed their lights behind the car. 
Albert, the driver, was getting ready to pull over when his friend in the car said, Don't pull over! Don't pull over! Drive! I stole this car! Albert led the police on a 17-mile high-speed chase when the car inadvertently crashed into a canal. They were taken to the Thibodeau jail and Albert took the fall for stealing the car. He was charged with auto theft, resisting arrest, hit and run, and speeding. Albert was sentenced to two years at the Thibodeau jail. This is where he was put onto a work crew and made to do chores around the jail. Not long after being sentenced to Thibodeau is where Albert made a plan to escape. He escaped through the back door of the jail and stole a bicycle. We eventually found an idle cement truck with the keys still in the ignition. He was eventually pulled over by the cops where he made a mad dash and took the police on another chase, this time on foot. The police eventually caught him and beat him bloody before taking him back to the prison where he was charged with escape, theft, driving without a license, resisting an officer, and speeding. He was brought before a judge who gave Albert two options. He could spend four years at the Huma City Jail or two years at the infamous Louisiana State Penitentiary at Angola. This would be a decision that would change the trajectory of Albert's life forever. He chose Angola. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Angola, the Louisiana State Penitentiary, the largest and most historic penitentiary in Louisiana, and the most infamous. The horrors of this prison cannot be exaggerated. For starters, the prison land resembled a slave plantation, and that's because it was once an actual slave plantation. And in 1965, the prison was still operated somewhat like a slave plantation. The prison was heavily segregated. There was actual field work that prisoners would do, and 99% of this field work was done by black prisoners. And as they did this field work, hunched over in chains, prison guards with shotguns around their lap would ride around on horseback in overwatch, threaten, and beat prisoners if they stepped out of line. They yelled out, work faster, nigger! Angola was originally one of six slave breeding plantations owned by a man named Isaac Franklin. The plantation land was vast and stretched out over 18,000 acres. There was a main prison called the Big Yard that housed most prisoners, and there were several camps outlying compounds that contained dorms, cell blocks, a dining hall, an office separated by fields of crops and swampland. In 1869, the slave trader's widow leased the land from four of his plantations to a former Confederate major who wanted to farm it. As part of a legal convict leasing program established through the South after the Civil War, he leased prisoners from New Orleans and other city jails to work his farm. The convicts, many charged with minor crimes, were housed in former slave quarters and worked seven days a week. They were starved and beaten. Hundreds are said to have died every year, but that didn't affect the business of the former Confederate major. There were always new convicts to lease. In 1901, the state of Louisiana took over and purchased the land, which became the state penitentiary that was always called Angola 
after the African country where the plantation's original slaves were born. And the more that things change, the more they stay the same. Prison life at Angola was very much more or less legalized, institutionalized slavery. There was sexual slavery that ran rampant as an economy at the prison. And any given time, if you were caught lacking or were in the wrong place, you could be beaten, assaulted, and pimped out into sexual slavery. And this wasn't just the inmates selling each other into slavery. The guards, the prison guards, would actually beat and sell inmates into sexual slavery in the prison. This was all a very rash realization for Albert, who had gone from very minor and petty crimes to the most notorious prison in America. Luckily for Albert, he had a reputation as a tough guy and a fighter, and this actually spread throughout Angola. So no one really messed with him. So Albert took this reputation and used it to his advantage to protect himself and also protect others. If he ever saw someone in danger of being beaten or sexually assaulted, he would step in and stop it. In February of 1966, Albert had served one-third of his 24-month sentence in Angola and was released on parole. But Angola had not rehabilitated him. It had done quite the opposite. It had hardened him and made him believe that in order to survive in this world, you must survive. And that was the only way to advance. And in order to survive, you must take. After resorting back to more petty crime, Albert was sent back to Angola, where he served another eight-month stint and was released in August of 1967. The petty crime of lifting small things and stealing cars eventually turned into armed robberies of grocery stores. Albert was charged with rape twice, but he was no rapist. The first time, it was because he was messing with a married woman who eventually claimed he raped her, but the charges eventually wouldn't stick because she kept changing her story over and over again, so he was made to plead down to aggravated battery. The second time, he was arrested for aggravated battery, but the police cleaned the books on him. Cleaning the books was a term for a process where the police would give you false charges to meet quotas for their arrest records. And in this particular instance, they charged Albert with every robbery, rape, and assault that they had unsolved at the time. On February 13, 1969, things would get serious. Albert and two friends, James and Frank, walked to a corner bar called Tony's Green Room. They immediately began robbing the place at gunpoint. The police were tipped off because someone had called them and reported that three men walked into the bar with guns. Midway through the robbery, the police came in and began shooting. Albert dropped his weapon and pretended to be a customer. Frank was shot in the face. After this, Albert escaped and went to Frank's girlfriend's apartment to formulate a plan to break Frank out of police custody at the hospital he was being held at. As soon as they made their way to the car, the police jumped out from behind the bushes and parked vehicles and arrested Albert. James, the other accomplice of the robbery, had complied with the police and gave them Albert's name and car description. Albert was beat senseless by the police and taken back to jail. Albert was offered a 15-year plea deal, with the deal only making him serve seven years. But he would have to go back to Angola, and Albert did not want to go back to Angola. He denied the deal and wanted to take his chances in court. He knew there was a chance he would get a better deal, but the judge thought differently. He called Albert an animal and sentenced him to 50 years in prison, 5-0. Albert had actually formulated an escape plan from the court when he was being sentenced. 
He had a friend of his hide a gun for him in the bathroom, and he was able to convince the cops not to handcuff both of his hands. He then held up police officers in an elevator and escaped the prison with another inmate who was caught very quickly. Albert managed to escape, got a friend to drive him across the state line to Mississippi, and then he caught a bus to Atlanta, where he laid low and then caught another bus to Harlem, New York. Now, while he was in Harlem, he didn't have much money to his name, so he decided to hustle and double his money through a sports bookie who was running bets out of a store. He had placed a bet on a football team and he won. When Albert went to collect his winnings, the bookie and another guy jumped him and beat him close to death, then called the police and accused Albert of trying to rob them. Albert was arrested and used the fake name upon arrest of his childhood friend, Charles Harris. He was taken to the Manhattan House of a Detention, nicknamed The Tombs, which was a high-rise prison that wasn't nearly as bad as Angola, but it was still prison. It was overcrowded and hostile. But as Albert frankly put it, prison is prison. Perhaps escaping to New York was the best thing that could have happened to Albert in a weird, twisted way. The tombs in New York is where he began to make his first real transformation. This is where he met the Black Panther Party. There were three Black Panther Party members that were being held on the eighth floor of the tombs, and this is where Albert met them and were drawn to them. The Black Panther Party for Self-Defense was started in Oakland, California in 1966 by Huey Newton and Bobby Seale. They founded the party because they wanted to stop police brutality in their neighborhoods. The party gained a lot of steam and supporters, and chapters were started across the nation, including the Chicago, Illinois chapter that was headed by the late, great Chairman Fred Hampton. The Black Panthers that Albert met had made him interested in joining the party because of how they carried themselves. They were respectful, addressed you by name, and were widely educated and well-read. They held up closed fists to represent unity and solidarity. Albert was drawn to them by their morals and their 10-point program. The Black Panther 10-point program read, 1. We want freedom. We want power to determine the destiny of our black community. 2. We want full employment for our people. 3. We want an end to the robbery by the capitalists of our black community. 4. We want decent housing fit for the shelter of human beings. 5. We want education for our people that exposes the true nature of this decadent American society. We want education that teaches us our true history and our role in the present-day society. 6. We want all black men to be exempt from military service. 7. We want an immediate end to police brutality and the murder of black people. 8. We want freedom for all black men held in federal, state, county, and city prisons and jails. 9. We want all black people, when brought to trial, to be tried in court by a jury of their peer group of people from their black communities, as defined by the Constitution of the United States. And 10. We want land, bread, housing, education, clothing, justice, and peace. It was a common belief that the Black Panther Party was a racist organization, but that couldn't be farther from the truth. The FBI and the United States government actively conspired to extinguish the party through COINTELPRO, or Counterintelligence Program, an illegal and covert operation aimed at suppressing and destroying black unity and equity organizations, including the Black Panther Party. And this attitude was carried by prison wardens and officials everywhere, including the tombs and Angola. It was soon after that a few things happened. 
Albert became involved with the Black Panthers. He participated in a prison riot where prisoners were protesting their grievances of unfair and inhumane conditions. And it was soon that Albert's fingerprints came back and it was determined that he was not Charles Harris. And he was on a plane back to New Orleans where he would be sent back to Angola. And it's a shame because Charles Harris actually had his charges dropped for the robbery of the sports boogie. Albert got back to Angola and had found that not much had changed. The prison was still very violent. Sexual slavery was running rampant and the conditions were still very much so inhumane. But what had changed was Albert's moral code. He was now thinking with the mindset of a revolutionary. He was sent to Angola with the mission to establish a New Orleans chapter of the Black Panther Party. It is here where Albert met Herman Wallace, a fellow prisoner and Black Panther who would impact Albert for the rest of his life. Herman Wallace was six years older than Albert and had found his way to Angola by way of a bank robbery charge that landed him a 50-year sentence. He and Herman decided to join forces and start the Black Panther chapter together. They began to recruit other prisoners and preached self-liberation and the dangers of institutionalized racism and how the conditions of the prison were inhumane. They rallied prisoners together and got them educated, taught folks how to read and write, and taught them the importance of protest and filing grievances. Albert was showing newfound strength and courage and wisdom and would need this for what was to come. April 17, 1972. The day began like any other. Albert awoke and brushed his teeth in his cell and waited for a guard to let him out to go to breakfast. After this, he ended up back in his cell and went back to sleep and was later awakened by a guard yelling for everyone to get up. All you niggers get up and line up! There was mass confusion among the prisoners in Albert's section of the prison. There was growing word that a guard had been killed, which was no surprise to Albert because there was always a fight at the prison a guard could easily be killed by, and prisoners were going increasingly restless with wanting reform and better living conditions. Also, there was another guard killed the day before, but they had caught the perpetrator of that murder. Albert was quickly whisked away and was taken to a room where guards put guns in his face and hurled slurs at him and forced him to strip. What fox, you fucking nigger? You killed Brent Miller. If you think I'm scared of you because you're a Black Panther, then you don't know who the fuck I am. I want to note here that word had spread that Albert and Herman Wallace were very much so affiliated with the Black Panther Party, and that soiled the reputation with the prison guards and higher-ups and made them easy targets for beatings and assaults from guards. Albert was confused and didn't know who Brent Miller was. He was forced to strip and wear a jumpsuit. He was escorted to the prison dungeon where he was severely beaten and hurled into a shower. Other prisoners who were suspects of the murder were also brought here and tossed into cells of five people that were only meant for one. Brent Miller was a person in a long line of generations who were raised at Angola. His family roots ran deep there. The guards weren't looking for justice, they were looking for revenge. Albert later learned that Brent Miller was stabbed to death in the Pine One dormitory, a place he clearly had not been, but he knew they were going to set him up. For his alleged murder of Brent Miller, Albert was thrown in closed cell restricted, or CCR, a fancy term for solitary confinement. He was once again beat viciously and then thrown into a six by nine cell. Inside the cell, there was a bare bunk on the left and a ceramic toilet on the right. 
There was also a small sink and table and bench. Six by nine. Imagine that. Herman Wallace was also taken into CCR, beaten and thrown into the cell right next to Albert. We were locked down 23 hours a day. There was no outside exercise yard for CCR prisoners. There were prisoners in CCR who hadn't been outside in years. We couldn't make or receive phone calls. We weren't allowed books, magazines, newspapers, or radios. There were no fans on the tier. There was no access to ice, no hot water in the sinks in our cells. There was no hot plate to heat water on the tier. Needless to say, we were not allowed educational, social, vocational, or religious programs. We weren't allowed to do hobby crafts. Rats came up the shower drain at the end of the hall and would run down the hall. We threw things at them to keep them from coming into our cells. Mice came out at night. When the red ants invaded, they were everywhere all at once, in clothes, sheets, mail, toiletries, and our food. Our meals were put on the floor outside our cell doors. We stuck our hands through the bars to pull the trays underneath the door into our cell. Anytime we were taken off the tier, even if we were moving just outside the door to the bridge, we were forced to strip, bend over, and spread our buttocks for a visual cavity search. Then after we got dressed, we were put in full restraints. The guards in CCR were brutal. They would regularly strip inmates to humiliate them. They would shake a cell down, which meant they would go into the cell, beat the inmate, or gas him, and toss all of their belongings out looking for contraband. Albert and the other inmates would regularly fight back. If another inmate was being beaten or gassed, they would shake the bars of their cells and scream at the officers to get their hands off that man. Albert said that in the 1970s, they were gassed so much that a lot of the inmates became immune to tear gas. Albert said, the most effective way of protesting was the hunger strike. If we didn't eat for three days, prison officials were required by law to notify the Louisiana Department of Public Safety and Corrections. Ranking officers didn't want state officials called to the prison. They might find something wrong beside what the prisoners were protesting. Once we voted to go on a hunger strike to get toilet paper that wasn't being passed out, just the threat of a hunger strike that time got the tear guard to pass out the toilet paper. Our victories were few, but each victory made up for the losses before it. It was an adrenaline rush to win. Albert and Herman Wallace regularly led prison protests, months-long hunger strikes and protests to campaign for better conditions, books, magazines, radios, toilet paper, toiletries, and humane treatment. Albert became more of a leader in CCR. He taught prisoners to read and got levels of democracy going. He taught prisoners to stand up for themselves. The old Albert was gone. Soon thereafter, another Black Panther named Robert King was placed in CCR. Robert King was also from New Orleans and was serving a 35-year sentence for a crime he did not commit. He was only tried and convicted of this crime because his co-defendant said he picked Robert out of a lineup after being tortured by the police. Albert was familiar with Robert. Albert, Herman Wallace, and Robert King would formulate a brotherhood for decades to come. By the time Albert's trial for the murder of Brent Miller started in March of 1973, he had been in solitary confinement for a little under a year. He was being represented by a young and inexperienced attorney named Charles Gerritsen. Things were already not faring well for Albert. According to the coroner, 
Brent Miller was stabbed 32 times around 7.45 a.m. on April 17, 1974, and he died four minutes later at 7.49 a.m. Albert was being tried along with three other inmates, Chester Jackson, Gilbert Montague, and Herman Wallace. The star witness for the prosecution was a black inmate in his 60s named Hezekiah Walker. He was serving a life sentence for aggravated rape and was known as the prison snitch. He testified that he saw Montague, Jackson, Albert, and Herman Wallace murder Brent Miller. He said he saw the entire thing and it was basically a gang murder. The jury deliberated less than an hour and Albert was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison. Herman Wallace, Albert's comrade and fellow Black Panther, was also found guilty and sentenced to life in prison. At this time, Robert King was also fighting his own battles. He was set up for being militant and aggressive and rebellious. Two prisoners on King's side of the prison got in a fight and one was killed. The killer admitted to it, but for some reason, King was taken in and tried alongside the killer. A murder he was nowhere near and that had a dozen eyewitnesses. Nonetheless, in the summer of 1973, Robert King was also found guilty and sentenced to life in prison. King was taken back to CCR to rot alongside Albert and Herman, three Black Panthers in solitary confinement serving life sentences for crimes they did not commit. After the trials, Albert, Herman, and King were sent back to solitary confinement, and for the next 20 years, they would do the same song and dance. They were in their cells 23 hours a day. They would get physical activity up to three times a week, and they were mistreated and severely beaten by police officers and guards. The guards did everything they could to break Albert, King, and Herman, and to keep them apart. It was obvious that their status as Black Panthers was being used against them. Between regular solitary confinement, the three Panthers did many stints in the dungeon and Camp J. Camp J was a place where insubordinate prisoners would be sent to spend months on end in what I like to call super solitary confinement. This is where they were often denied food and decent human privileges. They were beaten more and made to bake in hot cells during the summer months and freeze in cold cells during the winter months. Fast forward. The 1990s was a whirlwind for Albert Woodfox. He ended up getting a second trial in 1993 to overturn his 1973 conviction, citing inadequate counsel, which was 100% correct, and his conviction was overturned. The state quickly re-indicted Albert for the murder, and he went back to trial in 1998. By this time, there were many things that had come out, many facts that were not presented or paid attention to during that 1973 farce of a trial. For starters, there was a bloody fingerprint at the scene of the crime, but the prison officials never, ever went through any of the proper protocols to match the fingerprint. It also came out that Hezekiah Walker, the prosecution's star witness in 1973, was paid off in money, cigarettes, and an expedited pardon, which led him out of prison in the 1980s. By the time the new trial came about in 1998, Walker and a lot of the state's witnesses had died. Albert also had a stone-cold alibi. He was nowhere near that section of the prison where the murder happened. This time, the prosecution tried to paint Albert as a recent militant who killed Brent Miller because he hated white people. Albert had also passed a lie detector test, but that couldn't be used in court. Despite all of this, Albert was found guilty again. By the 2000s, Albert Woodfox, Herman Wallace, and Robert King had all spent 30 years in solitary confinement for crimes they did not commit. 
By this time, they were known as the Angola Three. King's 1973 conviction on charges unrelated to Miller's murder was overturned in 2001 on appeal. The court ordered a new trial, while the state had the option to dismiss the charges. It reindicted King and said it would retry him. Before going to trial, the prosecutor offered him a plea, with the sentences for the lower charges to be offset by the time he had already served. King took the plea in order to gain release after 29 years in solitary confinement, but he said that he was innocent of the charges. He was released in 2001, the first of the Angola Three to gain freedom. King would use the next decade and a half touring the country and the world with lawyers, grassroots organizations, and nonprofit organizations to protest the method of solitary confinement and the fact that it violated people's First, Eighth, Thirteenth, and Fourteenth Amendment rights. Albert Woodfox and Herman Wallace spent the 2000s in solitary confinement, but they kept fighting. By this time, they were older men in their 50s and 60s, but they kept the fight alive. They petitioned and appealed to circuit courts, state courts, and supreme courts, but kept getting accepted and denied over and over and over again. The state said repeatedly that these men would be released and be an immediate threat to society. State representatives repeatedly ran smear campaigns on Albert, saying he was a rapist, and if the charges for Brent Miller's murder were ever dropped, they would just try and convict him on the rape charges from the 1960s. The one where the police cleaned the books? The rape charges we know are false. In July of 2013, Herman Wallace was diagnosed with advanced liver cancer, and Albert was told sometime before that that he was a diabetic. The years in solitary confinement were not kind on their bodies, and a method of abuse and intimidation by the guards was to regularly refuse medical care. In 2014, a court ruled that Albert's murder charge was false and was only upheld through racially discriminatory means. But in 2015, the state indicted him for the murder a third time. In July of 2013, Herman Wallace was released, but only for humanitarian reasons, since his cancer was progressively getting worse and he was only given months more to live. The state went on record to say that he was still a threat to society. A man in his 70s dying from cancer was still a threat to society. On October 3, 2013, a grand jury would actually reindict Herman Wallace for the murder of Brent Miller. However, Herman died three days later on October 4th, 2013, before he could be rearrested. After massive protests, petitions signed, and court proceedings, Albert Woodfox was finally released on his 69th birthday on February 19th, 2016, after being imprisoned for 45 years, 43 of them in solitary confinement. And he was only released after taking a plea deal because he knew that the courts might find him guilty again. After being released, Albert would go on to do a lot of press and tell his story about the horror of solitary confinement. Not only his story, but the story of Herman Wallace and Robert King. He bought a house and got to know his daughter, his grandchildren, and his great-grandchildren. After his release, Albert wrote a memoir, Solitary, Unbroken by Four Decades in Solitary Confinement, My Story of Transformation and Hope. This is about his early life and four decades in prison. I read it and it brought me to tears because it is so incredibly powerful and eye-opening. Albert Woodfox died at the age of 75 on August 4th, 2022 from COVID-19 complications. I think what makes Albert's story so important and so powerful 
is that through over 40 years of solitary confinement, he was never broken. If you go, and I encourage everyone to go read his book, read his memoir, he was never broken. He maintained his mental. There were times like the times of his mother's death, his his sister's death, where he was not allowed out of the prison, out of solitary confinement to even go to their funerals where, you know, those times, those times kind of got to him. But he was never broken. Imagine being locked up like an animal, six by nine cell for 40 plus years and your mind never wavered. He cared more about maintaining his integrity and his innocence, maintaining his mindset and maintaining his morals and his values. And I just think that is so powerful. So I truly encourage everyone to go read Albert Woodfox's book. I'm gonna have it linked in the show notes below. When Albert Woodfox was serving his time in solitary confinement at Angola, The state of Louisiana housed the most prisoners of any state in the United States, and that fact still rings true to this day. I wanted to tell this story to get you thinking about what true abolition is. I hope that the mission was accomplished. Albert said, Nelson Mandela taught me that if you have a noble cause, you are able to carry the weight of the world on your shoulders. Malcolm X taught me that it doesn't matter where you start out, what matters is where you end up. George Jackson taught me that if you're not willing to die for what you believe in, you don't believe in anything. Long live Albert Wood Fox. Until next time. Yo, if you like this episode, please do us a favor and go leave a rating and review down below. It really helps out a lot. Also, go subscribe to the podcast YouTube channel and go like and follow us on Instagram. I appreciate y'all so much.